Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 28th of July, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson uh, speaking to us from dear old Blighty, as opposed to the Netherlands. Um, well, we're going to get straight on with uh, the latest technical briefing, number 19, released on the 23rd of July. Uh, now, of course, uh, brief technical briefing number 17 got me into a bit of trouble because I uh, made some uh, comments about it, uh, which were disagreed with by some. Um, those were clarified, um, but uh, I actually then got told off subsequently for clarifying them because I was told I was right in the first place. So what is the facts uh, behind this? Uh, what are we going to talk about here? Well, let's just uh, have a quick look. Um, this uh, table, table five, attendance to emergency care and deaths by vaccination status amongst all sequenced and genotype Delta cases in uh, England from the 1st of February to the 19th of July, 2021. And of course, what we're talking about here is the government's numbers. We're not making any statement about uh, whether these cases are genuine or not. We've made plenty of statements in the past about uh, PCR and the re reliability of PCR. Um, so these numbers are what the government is talking about, and that's really what we're focusing on here. So whether any of these cases is a genuine case or not, uh, well, that's uh, a, a different matter. But if we look at uh, the all cases line here um, for people that have been vaccinated and unvaccinated, well, what do we get here? We get a vaccinated total of uh, 82,864 cases and an unvaccinated total of 121,402 cases. Now, are those numbers accurate? Well, it depends on who you speak to because uh, although the numbers in the table, Public Health England are claim, claim are accurate, um, whether somebody is considered to be fully vaccinated or not, uh, and whether it's appropriate to say that there's 82,000 people that are vaccinated in total or not is what uh, is really the, the, at the bottom of the debate about this table because the mainstream press will say, well, the only people that are fully vaccinated are those that are double dosed and there's only 28,773 of those. Uh, so if you take uh, that number, um, then of course the unvaccinated total, if you consider that people that are only partially vaccinated are effectively unvaccinated, because it doesn't really work unless you've had two doses, uh, then the, the numbers seem somewhat different. So we can uh, have a discussion about the accuracy or not of, of that. Uh, but this is what I'm saying, a vaccinated total of uh, 82,864 and an unvaccinated total of 121,402. And Brian, the first thing to say there is, these are not orders of magnitude different. Um, so that's the first point to make. So let's move on with this. And what's it talking about next? It's talking about uh, deaths within 28 days of a positive, positive specimen date. Uh, and again, we might say that the vaccinated deaths are 289 in total, uh, as against 165 amongst unvaccinated deaths. And of course, it was this statistic that got me into trouble the last time because uh, I was told that, uh, uh, in fact, uh, the, the main levels of deaths are in the over 50s. And uh, of course, you're going to get uh, people over 50 dying. Um, and so therefore it didn't really count. Uh, well, apparently other people are really finding this difficult, this statistic to get around because we're starting to see headlines like this, which tries to justify it. So this is from medical press. Uh, and the headline is most COVID deaths in England now are in the vaccinated. Here's why that shouldn't alarm you. Um, and so they talk about a simple thought experiment. Imagine everyone is now fully vaccinated with COVID vaccines which are excellent, but can't save all lives. We'll come on to that in a little bit. Uh, some people who get in infected with COVID will still die. All of these people will be fully vaccinated, 100%. That 
That doesn't mean that vaccines aren't effective at reducing death. Uh, the risk of dying from COVID, they say, doubles roughly every seven years older a patient is. The 35-year difference between 35-year-olds year and 70-year-olds means the risk of death between the two patients has doubled five times. Uh, equivalently, it has uh, increased by a factor of 32. An unvaccinated 70-year-old might be 32 times more likely to die of COVID than an unvaccinated 35-year-old. This, this dramatic variation of the risk profile with age means that even excellent vaccines don't reduce the risk of death for older people to below the risk for some younger demographics. Okay, that's their claim. That's what they're saying. So uh, they also say, however, in this, uh, in this report, Public Health England data suggests that being double vaccinated reduced the risk of being hospitalized uh, with the now dominant Delta variant by around 96%. So let's just uh, have a look at that st statistic and does that stack up? Well, coming back to the Technical Briefing 19 and looking at attendance to emer emergency care and deaths by vaccination uh, amongst, the, this is what the table is about, same table. Uh, and what we're looking at here is cases where presentation to emergency care resulted in an overnight inpatient admission. It seems to me that if somebody goes to emergency care uh, and they're released on the same day, that doesn't really count. We've got a, the, the, the stress on the NHS is when is in beds. So if people aren't occupying a bed, then we shouldn't be worrying about it too much. But anyway, uh, so let's, let's play the game and only count the double vaccinated hospitalizations. Uh, and in which case they're saying 474 people are, vaccinated, are, are hospitalized and in unvaccinated at 1,742. But this is between the 1st of February uh, 2021 and the 19th of July 2021. So I'm not certain that that's putting any particular pressure on the NHS. Uh, and when you particularly when you look at the relative to the number of cases, um, it's not the number of cases is not resulting in hospitalizations, not even amongst the unvaccinated. So um, where's the effect of the vaccine? It's not clear. But we'll come on to this uh, a bit more in a second. Now, uh, if we go back to deaths then, um, and we look at double vaccinated deaths, 224, unvaccinated deaths, 165. It's still, if you only include the double vaccinated, it's still bigger. But here's the problem with it. If we, uh, well, we have to use the Israeli data for this, really to do this calculation. But if we take Pfizer as an example, Pfizer claims to have a 95% efficacy. So um, that's our baseline here. Um, in Israel, in the latest uh, data, the fully vaccinated population of Israel is 59%. Uh, that means 41% is everyone else, okay? Uh, and if we therefore work out, based on the 95% efficacy, um, we're expect so 95% of the 59% of the uh, fully vaccinated population comes to 56.05% of the fully vaccinated population would be protected if we believe what the government says. Uh, and 2.95% of the uh, fully vaccinated population would be unprotected on the basis that, it, that the vaccine only has 95% efficacy. Remember, we're talking about what they're saying. This is not what I'm saying. Uh, so uh, the, the, the hospitalizations and deaths that you would expect would come from that 2.95%. So we'll just work out a quick ratio here, um, which is 2.95 over 41. Um, so we're going to call that the expected ratio. This is what we would expect to see. But, uh, and that would mean that uh, as a percentage of the vaccinated, we would expect to see 77.2% uh, um, fully vaccinated um, having problems dying. 
um, and uh, and 92.8 percent of the of the people that are uh, going to hospital that are dying, uh, we'd expect to see that as this would be the expected proportion between vaccinated and unvaccinated. But in fact, based on the Israeli data, what we're seeing is 63% vaccinated and 37% uh, unvaccinated dying. Um, and so that actually, although we don't have the, the numbers in the UK data to do the calculation, this, when we look at the, the, the baseline figure, which is this, um, is quite similar. So what effect is the vaccine actually having at this point? If we're expecting to see a 7% of the deaths being in the vaccinated and the rest being uh, in the unvaccinated, uh, but in fact, we're seeing 60% of the deaths in the vaccinated and 30% or 40% of the deaths in unvaccinated people. Um, and, and we're seeing similar kinds of statistics in the UK, although it's not quite the same, but it's, it's very close. We could come up with two answers, Mike, couldn't we? We could come up and say that there's a serious problem here, or we could be saying that the fact the public isn't given accurate statistics and accurate analysis by the government into what's happening as a result of the vaccine programme says that they don't want to get into this level of detail. So you're asking the questions that the government should be asking. Why aren't the government, why isn't the government asking those questions? because they are frightened of the answers, I'm going to suggest. Uh, well, indeed. And, and of course, we had the incident last week of uh, Patrick Vallance getting the 60-40 portions reversed uh, in his, when he, and then he had to issue a retraction the following day on, on Twitter. So there seems to be this uh, obfuscation, or I mean, it's a clear obfuscation because the, there's no way to compare like with like between various data sets. Uh, the data sets are incomplete. I mean, if we put that back on screen for a second, the point that was made to me when I was criticized for uh, sort of partially retracting what I'd said uh, with, with technical briefing 17 was that this whole basis of, of under 50s and over 50s, this separation between these two cohorts in these statistics is completely arbitrary. It, it's been completely made up. There's no real, there's no medical reason, there's no uh, immunological reason, there's no historical basis for this uh, under 50s and over 50s um, division between yeah. statistics. Uh, and the argument that was made to me was that that, uh, that division has been deliberately chosen in order to make skew the figures and make it the picture look in a particular way. So, um, you know, this, this issue of the quality of the data, the availability of the data, the ability to compare data with data with, for various data sets, the fact that hospital bed occupancy, ICU occupancy, ICU and hospital bed availability over the last 40 years, we can't see any trends because this data isn't easily available. And as, even when it is available, they've changed the way that they've gathered the data, they changed the way they present the data. There's no way to actually get a proper picture on it. Certainly for the ordinary person who's, busy, who's still occupied with everyday life and going to work, they need some help in looking at this data. And let's remind our audience that the MHRA, which says it's there to protect the health and safety of the UK population, has still not released any coherent and analytical data on its own yellow card vaccine adverse effect statistics. So the organisation that is the lead for protecting the public from dangerous medicines and vaccines has still not produced a single document showing its analysis into the safety of vaccines. Mm. 
Francis's time might to um, introduce uh, this gentleman. Now, UK Column has said that we're absolutely delighted that we've got some top world experts coming to us in order to comment on what they think is happening. And uh, a few days ago, we were able to speak to uh, this, this gentleman, Christian Perron, who's former chairman of the Specialised Committee on Communicable, Communicable Diseases. And that's the High Council of Public Health in France. And he was a former member of the European group advising the World Health Organization. Now, this uh, gentleman has spoken out and, of course, as a result of speaking out uh, on the subject of vaccines, he's suddenly been removed from these very high profile positions. Uh, but we're going to say the full interview on this will be available shortly. Uh, we've still got a little bit more editing to do before it's ready. Um, but uh, Mike, you've just done your detailed analysis into the British government's own data, uh, but we've now got world-class experts coming and also challenging what's happening. Let's have a look at uh, a little excerpt from that interview. Okay, and can we just press a little bit further? If, if they're not vaccines, what would you call them? Uh, it may be uh, genetic modifiers. I don't know exactly the, the good term on the scientific point of view, but when you inject uh, messenger RNA, uh, to produce uh, a huge amount of uh, spike proteins, a fragment of the coronavirus uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus, um, you, you don't control the process. And uh, the problem is that in human cells, we know that RNA may go back to DNA. Normally, it's from DNA to RNA, it's a little bit maybe uh, a little bit difficult to understand for. A general audience, but it may go in the reverse uh, way uh, because we have in our uh, chromosomes, in our genome, uh, uh, genes in our DNA uh, coming from retroviruses for uh, millions of centuries. Uh, they are animal origin and they can code for enzymes uh, which can code in the reverse side. So we know now it's, it's officially published, but now we find in the human genome sequences of DNA uh, corresponding to the RNA of the virus. So it's a proof that what I said in December in a public letter uh, saying that it was dangerous to inject these products, now it's confirmed. But all the governments continue. Uh, it's, it's a, for, for me, it's a, it's a great uh, mistake. So. Is there a pandemic? Was there ever a pandemic? But as well as that, um, should the unvaccinated be afraid of the um, of the, the current variants that are out there and the coming variants? Exactly the reverse. The vaccinated people uh, uh, are at risk for the new variants and transmit it. It's proven now in different countries. So vaccinated people should be put in quarantine and should be isolated from the society. And unvaccinated people are, are not dangerous. Vaccinated people are dangerous for others. It's proven in Israel now, uh, as I'm in contact with many physicians in Israel, uh, they have a big problems. Uh, now, severe cases in hospitals are among vaccinated people. And uh, in UK also, you, you had a larger uh, vaccination program and also there are problems. But the Delta variants, 
uh, is not is not very uh, it's not very dangerous. It's all the variants uh, since last year are less and less vibrant. It's always a story of infectious diseases. So a very interesting and uh, powerful interview with um, Professor Perron. And uh, let's remember that he was uh, originally in charge, if you like, of the French uh, vaccine system. He was involved in the policy. And as he said at the beginning of our interview, he be believes in vaccines. But in the case of the vaccines that have been presented to the population in France and UK and worldwide at the moment, he is saying these are dangerous. So we've got a we've got a professional who has now looked at the evidence of what, what is being presented to the public, and he's he's warning of the dangers. Mm. So I don't know whether we, Alex would like to uh, comment at all. Yes, I believe that um, I'm speaking here from, and I believe that the sound is good, though the video quality is not excellent. But as you announced, Brian, we are going to go to town on this uh, whole series with French experts. So one of the things I'm doing is sure that a transcript is available for the website by the time it, the video is released, because he does have uh, sometimes some quite strong French idioms and pronunciation. And we've had feedback already that people would like subtitles. Well, transcript is more accurate and, and less effort, actually. So we'll do that rather than subtitles. Uh, but in a bit that I've just transcribed this morning, Professor Christian Perron goes on to say, we should by now have reliable serological tests. This is where you draw a blood sample and look bodies that your body has produced against a virus if you had the disease recently. The problem is, says Professor Perron, that no lab in the world has developed a reliable serological test. That's terrible. I think that the scientific community, owing to some conflicts of interest, did not want reliable serological tests, because if we had done that, we would be able to see today that most of the British, German, Spanish population are now immune. But he showed that, he says, it would be a big one for the marketing by the pharmacological companies, because they would then not be able to impose the vaccination policy, because I think that most people in Europe and other countries worldwide are already recognized there is herd immunity. To me, this is a scandal sabotage. So speaks the man who wrote the French vaccination policy. Uh, yes, I'm afraid, Alex, your audio is dropping out quite a bit. So I don't know whether you might like to try to reconnect and see if we can uh, do a little bit better with that. Uh, but uh, thanks for those comments. Yeah, and we will say full interview with Christian Perron will be available in the next few days. And it contains a lot of really startling information. And there are more more of the experts to follow. Um, well, why should the UK government and other governments be getting panicky about young people? This headline from Sky probably says it all. COVID-19 younger age groups will take longer to vaccinate than older as enthusiasm wanes. And it goes on to say there's been a reduction in the numbers of younger people taking up their invitation to get vaccinated. Uh, as that age group sees the highest number of COVID-19 cases. So a typical headline because um, it's got the fear factor in there that apparently because there's more cases, younger people should be afraid and therefore go and be vaccinated. Whereas uh, the indications are that, of course, the, the uh, virus is not dangerous for those young people. But Sky following the policy 
And then they've uh, reinforced it with quotes from this gentleman, Rahib Ali, the honorary consultant, Oxford University Hospitals NHS Trust. Um, without any data, any graphs, any statistics, any information of any sort, he simply gives his opinion to provide the meat of Sky's reporting. So this is what he says. As a lot of this age group are getting infected, some think they are immune anyway, so they don't need the vaccine. The risks are lower for younger people if they get COVID-19, so some don't think they need the vaccine, but they still do. No data to support that uh, claim, Mike, whatsoever. Some have also developed COVID in the interim after the first dose, so they've had to delay getting their second, which could be affecting numbers. I particularly like that one. So you get vaccinated, which is going to protect you, but it doesn't. Well, you need two doses. And then is there evidence that it protects you fully? No, there isn't. Um, so the spin continues. There's no doubt we're struggling to get higher uptake in lower age groups than we'd like. Who is we? I wondered when I read this statement. Uh, because does he regard himself as simply being part of the uh, British government team? Is he part of the SAGE team? Is he, is he part of Boris Johnson's cabinet team? Who is the we? Well, of course, we're not told. Um, it's a bit of inertia as well as natural infection affecting the numbers, but we'd expect that to improve in the coming weeks if cases continue to fall. Mm -hmm. So cases are falling. The, the uh, COVID is not dangerous for younger people. Um, but despite that, uh, we've got to keep pushing for vaccinations. Now is also a really good time to be able to get both doses before starting university in September. You don't want to be self-isolating when you get there. Now, I'm going to comment on this because uh, what Rahib Ali is doing is ending with the applied psychology of fear and a threat, i.e. Um, if you don't do what we suggest you're going to do, if you don't do what we're telling you, then you could be in a very nasty position, self-isolating at university. And of course, we know there's a huge increase in mental health problems amongst young students as a result of the government's lockdown policies to date. So a Sky News article with no data, documents, statistics, or evidence of any kind to back up the claim of the headline. Mm. Um, well, the uh, Telegraph uh, day or two ago, claiming an exclusive that over half of COVID hospitalizations tested positive after admission. Um, and what they're saying is leaked data suggests vast numbers classed as being hospitalized by the virus uh, when they were admitted, uh, when in fact they were admitted with other ailments. More than half of the COVID hospitalizations are patients who only tested positive after admission, according to leaked data. Uh, the figures suggest vast numbers are being classed as hospitalized by COVID when they're admitted with other ailments, with the virus picked up by routine testing. Uh, so in other words, they're exhibiting no symptoms. They went in for another issue. Uh, they were then tested and, uh, and they tested positive. Uh, experts said it meant the national statistics published daily on the government website and frequently referred to by ministers may far overstate the levels uh, of pressures on the NHS. Uh, the leaked data covering all NHS trusts in England show that as of last Thursday, just 44% of the patients uh, classed, 44% uh, involved people who tested positive in the 14 days before hospital entry. A further 43% were made within four, two days of admission, with 13% uh, 
made in the days and weeks that followed, including those likely to have caught the virus in hospital. So they do quote uh, Carl Hennigan from the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University, and he said that data is incredibly important and it should be published on an ongoing basis. When people hear about hospitalizations with COVID, they will assume that COVID is the likely cause, but this data shows something quite different. Uh, this is about COVID being detected after tests were looking for it. Uh, and they also quote uh, Graham Brady, who's the chairman of the 1922 committee, saying that nearly 18 months into the COVID crisis, it's absurd that data is uh, breaking down hospital admissions, isn't, still isn't publicly available on a regular basis. Counting all patients who test positive as COVID hospitalizations is inevitably misleading and gives a false picture of the continuing health impact of the virus. Uh, Greg Clark, uh, who's chairman of the Common Science and Technology Select Committee, chimed in as well. He said, if hospitalizations from COVID are a key determinant of how concerned we should be and how quickly restrictions should be lifted, it's important that data is not presented in a way that could lead to the wrong conclusions being drawn. While some of these people uh, may be being admitted due to COVID, we currently do not know how many. And for those who are not, there's a big distinction between people who are admitted because of COVID and the, those who are in for something else but have COVID in a much more mild form or it's not the cause of their hospitalization. And I'm going to say, well, I'm glad some people are starting to catch up on this because this is something, this is a point that we've been trying to make for about a year now, I think. Um, and uh, uh, so what is this article? Is this an attempt to sort of walk back from the, from the previous position in the mainstream press? Uh, or is this uh, finally an admission by the mainstream press that they've been wrong uh, from the beginning on this? I think it's the truth, Mike, starting to spread through the system. They've pumped out all of the misleading information and the, the mainstream media, I'm talking about the press, have pushed out all the government policy. A lot of that has been untrue. It's been misleading. It's been propaganda. Now what we've got is truth, which is very powerful, starting to seep back through the system. So this is to anybody who's speaking out and they're looking at in the right direction and presenting the right data needs to be supported. Um, so let's have a look at this then because uh, maybe it gives uh, some more indication uh, of misleading information we've had over the last uh, 12 or 14 months. Um, this actually was published in December. It's a paper um, from Italy. It's entitled Unexpected Detection of SARS-CoV-2 Antibodies in the Pandemic in the pandemic, sorry, the pre-pandemic period uh, in Italy. Um, and so uh, this was from Italy's Instituto Nazionale di Tumori. It's a, a cancer uh, institute. Um, and they collected blood sample samples with respect to cancer patients uh, in September and October 2019, which seemed to indicate the coronavirus antibodies were already uh, uh, present at that point. Um, so uh, they were, the, these uh, sorry, these cancer uh, study samples were retrospectively tested um, and uh, the results showed 11.6% of 959 healthy volunteers had antibodies in their blood already in September, October, which means they had to have been infected prior to that. Um, and so the suggestion is that this, uh, uh, these were people that were all male smokers, that were all 55 to 65 years old, uh, and it's not clear why they should have had uh, these antibodies, uh, as you can see from the title of this. But we'll just say that, of course, we've had other scientific research. Oh, sorry, just before we get to that, we'll, we'll mention the, uh, this article, COVID-19 Italian study revives debate over when pandemics started in Europe. This is from the local.it. Um, and uh, 
this because up to date this December uh, research has now been confirmed by the World Health Organization. Um, and uh, the quote in this article is that the results of this uh, retesting suggest that uh, what we previously reported, that asymptomatic patients uh, is a plausible signal of early circulation of the virus in Italy. Well, they keep banging on this asymptomatic narrative. That's not quite accurate, but anyway, uh, because they've no uh, clear uh, knowledge of whether these people were symptomatic because they weren't looking for symptoms of this at the time. Um, if this is confirmed, this would explain the explosion of cases observed in Italy. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 or an earlier version circulated, circulated silently beneath the surface. Well, could that be because the vast majority of symptoms that people see are similar, if not identical, to the symptoms of other uh, respiratory viruses? So it was only once uh, there was a claim of a novel virus uh, that uh, we started heading into what was being described as a pandemic. So this thing, it, clearly seem to be doing the rounds prior to that. And we have evidence from other countries as well, of course. Let's just remind ourselves that Barcelona had been testing wastewater. And this is something the British government is doing now, finding the virus in, in uh, sewage water. Um, but this was from March 2019. They claimed to find it. Now, this particular report uh, was subsequently rubbished by the various fact checkers. Um, but it's not clear uh, exactly whether the fact checkers uh, were even close to being right. In fact, we can say that they weren't. But anyway, uh, another case here from Brazil, uh, coronavirus and sewage sample in November 2019. So there's lots more and more scientific evidence being developed that uh, uh, antibodies and also viral, viral material in sewage doing the rounds in 2019, long before this thing was claimed to have uh, become a novel virus. Yeah. And I'll just make the point again that everywhere that there's been flooding, whether it's in UK or Europe overseas, inevitably in the flood water is a large proportion of sewage and uh, nobody or nobody in official uh, officialdom is commenting, of course, on the risks of contaminated of sewage contamination in those flood waters um, with the uh, risk of uh, COVID in the background. And certainly Southwest Water doesn't want to talk about that. Well, let's change the angle a little bit and come in um, with our old friend Susan Mitchie. Now, uh, this is a report from the Daily Mail a little while ago, back in June, and the headline was Social Distancing and Face Masks Should Stay Forever, says Communist SAGE Committee member Professor Susan Mitchie. Now, she was taken to task on uh, one of the um, interview uh, mainstream media interviews um, over the fact she was a communist. She got very shirty about that and said it was relevant to the fact she was a scientist presenting scientific information. Uh, but the key bit of this was that uh, she clearly felt that the restrictions that people were facing at the moment was something that was just going to last into the foreseeable future. And that comment was enough to make a young lady, I think it was a Sky journalist, nearly fall off her chair. Um, while she was doing the interview. So we've been having a, a look at what's been going on, not only with SAGE, but with the SPY B committee. And uh, one of our sharp-eyed viewers uh, came across this document from Implementation Science. And we're straight into the realms of applied behavioral psychology, behavioral uh, influencing behavior in order to get political policies in place. 
And uh, this has come up with a, a wheel. Now, I'm sure many people have seen these little cardboard wheels that you have for various things. Maybe it's how you cook an egg properly or um, how you organize your day. But you've got a series of, uh, of discs which can be spun and positioned against each other in order to uh, produce certain results. Uh, but this is the level of um, research uh, that uh, we're now seeing is being used to influence the population of UK in order to get us to adhere to government policies. And of course, the main target area is that we should uh, adhere to all of the policies with regard to face masks, uh, lockdown, restrictions into venues, and of course, vaccines. So why are we interested in this? Well, this is part of the document itself, the behaviour change wheel, a new method for characterising and designing behaviour change interventions. And uh, our viewer spotted that uh, Susan Mitchie was uh, the uh, lead name amongst the authors. And we just found it very interesting that we've got this lady as a communist uh, now working uh, to help the government uh, change the behavior of the population so that we adhere to their policies without necessarily questioning. So if we just look at a bit of detail, the background of what was going on here was the design and impl implementation of evidence-based practice, and that depended on successful behavior change interventions. Uh, this required an appropriate method for characterizing interventions and linking them to, quote, analysis of the targeted behavior there exists a plethora of frameworks of behavior change interventions, but it's not clear how well they serve the purpose, this purpose. So they're gloating here, Mike, at the uh, armory they've got in order to use applied psychology, but they're not very clear apparently about how it works. Uh, so let's have a look. Methods, a systematic search of electronic databases and consultation with behavior change expert was used to identify frameworks of behaviour change interventions. I wonder what electronic databases she's referring to there. Could this be to do with the NHS or social services? We don't know. Uh, these were valued according to three criteria, comprehensiveness, coherence, and a clear link to overarching model of behaviour. Uh, the reliability with which it could be applied was examined in two domains of behaviour change, tobacco control and obesity. Now, I'm going to say to our audience, don't be fooled by the fact that tobacco and obesity are mentioned here, because as we dig into this material, uh, we are seeing more and more that there's always a soft line. Don't worry, we're only looking at tobacco and obesity, when in fact we can see deeper and deeper and deeper levels that they're targeting with behavioural change. So we'll follow through. These are the results. 19 frameworks were identified covering nine intervention functions and seven policy categories that could enable these interventions. None of the frameworks reviewed covered the full range of intervention functions or policies. Only a minority met the criteria of coherence or linkage to a model of behavior. At the center of a proposed new framework is a behavior system involving three essential conditions, capability, opportunity, and motivation. This forms the hub of the behavior change wheel. So all of these scientists working in the background to be, change our behavior, and what do they produce out of their time? They produce a little cardboard wheel. 
this is not silly though, because what they're doing is very serious. This is the conclusions. Interventions and policies to change behavior can be usefully characterized by means of a, a BCW, that's the wheel, comprising, quote, a behavior system at the hub encircled by intervention functions and then by policy categories. Research is needed. That means more money, more money to pay us is needed to establish how far the BCW can lead to more efficient design of effective interventions. And if you think this is all stuff and nonsense, let's remind ourselves that back in 2010, the British Cabinet Office boasted in its Mindspace document that it could use applied behavioral psychology to change the way people thought and behaved. And it gloated that they wouldn't know their behavior had changed or if they did, how it had been changed. And uh, Alex, if you can still hear us okay, I'd just like to ask for your opinion. We are seeing that this behavioral, applied behavioral change agenda is everywhere within the British government. Nobody is immune from it, including the politicians themselves. So the people controlling this policy must be the people who now hold power and can influence, can wield that power uh, within the British government. Well, yes, of course, because the means of logically profiling and uh, priming people, then you even get to select those who think that they got into the civil service or into academia through their own excellence and aptitude. Uh, it may be that they were already pre-funneled to be not only good at their job, but of a particular personality type. And if you read mid-century material from the 30s and 40s, uh, three books written by William Sargent, S-A-R-G-A-N-T, with no E in the surname. The mind is the best known, but there were two follow-ups that can be found as PDFs on the internet. You will see that the National Health Service and the government the service at the time, the 50s and 60s, was inordinately interested. And without going too deep for lunchtime news, I would just say that particular arcane societies were already talking in the first half of the 20th century, if not before that, about selecting the kinds of people that were necessary to fill the roles of administration. So yes, if you have this insight, you can run with it. It's very reminiscent of all Scottish government's uh, well-being agenda as part of the failed, but still, uh, still continued named person policy because what were social workers given there to play with? A well-being wheel since exported to the Netherlands. And uh, Alex, we'll just uh, add to that. Of course, it was the UK column back in 2011 that highlighted that uh, Sarkozy's um, neurological and, and psycho psychology expert, Olivier Willier, uh, was working with the Cabinet Office in, in UK. This was all facilitated by the Franco-British Council. And this was to build a joint Franco-British system of applied behavioral psychology to get policy in. So that was done in partnership with the French. And I have to say that the French experts who are now speaking to the UK column about their concerns about lockdown and the vaccine policy have actually been astonished to discover uh, this um, behavioral, applied behavioral psychology at work in France. Okay, let's move on to international matters. <clears throat> and uh, well, another week and another couple of NATO exercises going on. This is uh, exercise Thracian Star. And uh, so that was taking place in Bulgaria. It ended a couple of days ago. Uh, and uh, well, this, of course, putting more pressure on Russia. 
but it doesn't end there because there's a new one coming. Agile Spirit starts in a few days' time, uh, July the 26th. In fact, it's already started. Uh, and that's in Georgia, 700 military personnel, U.S. military personnel, uh, and uh, it's 1,600 Georgian troops, uh, 250 uh, troops from other uh, nations. And uh, the brigade-level exercise will incorporate a simulated command post exercise field training and joint multinational battalion-level combined arms live fire exercises. Agile Spirit 2021 enhances U.S.-Georgian allied and regional partner forces readiness and interoperability in a realistic training environment. Um, so uh, 14 nations taking part, as well as the U.S. and Georgia, that's uh, Estonia, Germany, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Spain, Turkey, Ukraine, UK, Canada, Italy, and Azerbaijan. Um, and, uh, well, uh, Rick uh, Rozov, uh, Alex, from uh, uh, antiwar.com was making the point that, of course, uh, a previous NATO exercise of a similar sort of scale uh, was followed on very quickly with uh, the Georgian attack on South Ossetia. So uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on this. It's actually the culmination of a 20-year cycle of US-led, but now it's also including Eastern European NATO members, training and equipping of Georgian and indeed Ukrainian troops. These countries both have uh, problems with separatist and unacknowledged territories, which have declared themselves republics separate from Ukraine and Georgia. And in fact, because of that, plus an alleged Chechen terrorist problem of very murky detail, uh, they started in 2002, a series of train and equip programs for Georgia. If you follow the press in Washington, uh, they are wringing their hands because with uh, the NATO presence in Afghanistan, in which Georgia has always supplied men and in fact lost some in Afghanistan, and if Georgia is losing one of the key ways that it can demonstrate that it is a loyal servant of the NATO agenda. And at least on paper, the U.S. Marines are uh, no longer going to be doing scheduled in-country training of Georgian troops. So in a sense, this is actually Georgia about to be left on its own. There are some overtones, Mike, of the situation leading up to the August 2. Hot war in South Ossetia. One of the famous unresolved questions there is Did Condoleezza Rice, then the US Secretary, the American equivalent foreign minister, um, stoke up the Georgians, stoke Mikhail Saakashvili, the then president, to attack on the back of a force that uh, the, the US and NATO would be right behind them facing the Russian 58th Army? If so, that is another overtone of what may follow. Yes. Okay, thank you for that, Alex. And uh, well, I don't know, when was the last time there was a terrorist incident on a ferry, Brian, in the UK? I mean, a UK-based uh, I, honest, I honestly can't remember. I, I know that fairly recently they were doing exercises on ferries but, uh, when there was an actual incident. Well, the, uh, not only are they, have they been doing exercises on ferries in the past, but we've now just uh, set up a new treaty between ourselves and the French to deal with uh, security on cross-channel ferries. Uh, so this is Dominic Rabb. Uh, he and Priti Patel have agreed a new maritime security treaty between the UK and France. Uh, this strengthens UK security by fully equipping law enforcement and emergency responders to respond to terrorist incidents, no matter where they occur, but especially on ferries. Uh, UK emergency responders will have more power to deal with terrorist incidents in the channel thanks to a new treaty. Uh, and uh, this is called the UK-France Maritime Security Treaty. Um, so let's see what uh, he had to say. As close allies, it's vital for the UK and France to work together to protect our citizens and values. Uh, today's signing of the UK-France Maritime Security Treaty will reinforce our ability to jointly respond swiftly and effectively to terrorist threats in the channel. 
Uh, and uh, so there we go. Uh, we've all got to be worried about travelling to France on the boat. It's fascinating, isn't it? At the moment, we can't, we can't control borders in that we've got people crossing the channel and simply arriving in UK. The government can't get to grips with that. People coming into UK in small rubber boats or part of the way in boats and swimming ashore. Uh, but we can go on to the ferries to make sure those nasty terrorists aren't going aren't to be on the uh, holiday ferries. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, but also do share our material on the platforms that we're still on. Uh, Twitter and F Facebook still on there for the moment, but certainly on brand YouTube, Rumble, BitChute and Odyssey as well. Yes. And uh, well, and yes, another quick advertisement for the, for the uh, uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics uh, Symposium, which is uh, being hosted by the UK Column. It's taking place tomorrow and Friday uh, from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, you can watch it on ukcolumn.org forward slash live. Um, UK Column members, of course, can also watch it on uh, uh, the uh, members live page and uh, take part in the chat box as well. Uh, and I'm sure somebody will be watching that. But uh, do, uh, do come along and watch that if you possibly can. Some fantastic people uh, taking part uh, in that. Uh, of course, Sukhara Bhakti, uh, Professor Michael Palmer, uh, Wolfgang Vodarg, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, uh, Mike Yeadon, uh, and a whole host of others taking part in that. It's going to be a spectacular event. But one thing we are going to say is uh, we've decided that we won't do a news program on Friday um, in order to make room for this. But uh, it's going to be 10 hours of. Uh, Fantastic content. Yeah, and uh, I think we can say again that we are extremely pleased that uh, we've got another section of professional people with the confidence to come to the UK column in order to help get their message out. So we're going to say back to those uh, doctors and um, experts, thank you very much for coming to the UK column. We appreciate it. And well, really, it's what we're here for, uh, which is to get the information out that uh, other news sources won't. Now, many people often say to us, how do we do things if we're challenging the system? How do we actually do it? I was sent this little video clip. Uh, let's just have a look at the still uh, by a number of people. And it's very simple. It's a lady who's at a cafe or something, but uh, she's having a conversation with an NHS vaccine team. And in the conversation, um, she quietly tells the NHS team what they don't know. So have a listen to this clip. You will have to uh, pay attention to what the NHS lady says. The video, uh, sorry, the audio is down a little bit, although we have tried to edit that. Um, but this is a very, very important little clip. Let's uh, uh, watch and listen, and then we can uh, discuss it a little bit. Okay, so sorry, I, ju I just jumped in there. Sorry, I was a bit presumptuous. Let's start again. No, don't worry. No. Okay, right. Hello, I'm Carol. Hi, Carol. Mrs. Mrs. Casal, hi. I was just calling to discuss your COVID vaccination plans and to, to get some feedback as to where you are with your decision making and if there's a specific reason that you haven't gone ahead with your vaccine yet. Absolutely. Looking at the yellow card system, which you're saying that you're unfamiliar with, which I think actually... Do you work for the NHS? I yeah, so the fact that you're actually ringing me to discuss a vaccine, but you're not aware 
of the system, the government system, that I can then go into if I had an adverse reaction, I think is quite unbelievable, to be honest. The reason why I'm declining the vaccine is because it's not a vaccine. It's still in the experimental stages, and there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of adverse reactions. Completely understandable. Yeah. Um, and I really suggest, as an NHS worker, that before you ring anybody else to discuss why they're not actually having the vaccine or where they are, that you actually find out about the yellow card system and have a look at how many people have died and how many people have had horrendous adverse effects. Mm -hmm. It's extremely important. It's on the government website. It's on the government website. So and only one percent get reported. It's not hidden, and it's known. The MHRI is it? MHRI. They, yeah, they say that only about ten percent of people actually report any adverse reactions. One percent, it, with that rumor. Um, so when you look at the figures and think that that's only ten percent of people actually logging their adverse reactions, it's quite scary. So I'm scared to take the vaccine. It's not a vaccine. It's a government trial, and I really don't want to be part of any trial. There is a treatment called ivermectin. There is a British scientist called Tess Laurie that is fighting tooth and nail to get ivermectin licensed in the UK. But unfortunately, she's been censored every which way possible because um, there's no financial gain for anybody. So I think it would be brilliant, Carol, if you, one, had a look at the yellow card system on the government website, and two... Have a look at Tess Laurie's um, website and research ivermectin because it is a much safer option and it would be lovely if the NHS started ringing people up and informing them about the other options that are out there rather than just the vaccine. Sure. Sorry, Brilliant. No, I'm certainly going to have more to say. And, you know, I want to learn just as much as anybody. Excellent. Perfect. And, you know, you know, I'm sorry that, that I didn't know anything about it, but trust me, by the end of my shift today, I will. Oh, that's fantastic. That, that has made me feel... Yeah. Honestly, if I can give you any reassurance, it's this, you know, that I will be looking into this straight away. And I'm a school teacher, so I feel even more strongly that this is soon going to be rolled out on children. Um, adults can make their own informed choice, but the fact that it's going to start being put into children, for me, is very scary. Is there any way, Carol, that you've got my number, that you could have a look at what I've said? So what a wonderful clip. What was so powerful about that, of course, is the lady, the school teacher, is so measured, she's so calm, she knows her facts, she's challenging the lady in the vaccination uh, booking centre uh, in a very measured, polite, reasonable way, and the result is that that lady is paying attention to what she's saying to the extent she says, I will go and, I will go and investigate this. She also talks about... To, at one stage says about talking to a supervisor. So the key to this is factual information, accurate, truthful information, and how you deal with the person in order to 
try and convince them to look um, down a different route. So I thought as a little snapshot of how to do things properly, uh, this lady needs a medal, really. Um, ivermectin, of course, the government has begun its uh, clinical trial of ivermectin. And, uh, well, we need to be watching that very carefully because uh, we saw the way they ran the, the uh, recovery trial for hydroxychloroquine and they effectively overdosed people uh, <laughs> based on, on certainly the uh, European levels of, of uh, what are considered to be the maximum doses that are allowed. Um, so that is a scandal. There's uh, uh, an article, a fantastic article by Ian Davis on that on the UK Column website, if you haven't seen that. Um, and of course, the other thing there is that, uh, well, the JCVI have said that, uh, well, they're going to be uh, targeting younger people that are uh, have various uh, learning disabilities and so on. At this point, uh, the decision to uh, uh, roll that out more broadly among school children it uh, looks like it's not going to be made for a little bit longer, but nonetheless, um, certainly some children are uh, are already being uh, categorised as those would want a uh, vaccine. Yeah. Um, now, uh, another quick advertisement. Uh, if you haven't uh, got your uh, Love in the Old Normal uh, t-shirt yet, Patrick still has uh, uh, some of these in stock. Uh, they're going very, very fast. There aren't very many left. Do get uh, your Love in the Old Normal t-shirt uh, if you would like one, they, we are all essential, it says on the back. Uh, and, uh, well, there were plenty of them at the uh, uh, demonstration at the weekend. And, uh, well, there's, there's a few more to get if you would like one. Yeah, excellent. Well, serious topic, uh, which several people have flagged up, and that is The Guardian and others are reporting uh, this particular article, hundreds of children abused whilst in the care of Lambeth Council, inquiry finds. Um, and it's saying that the abuse occurred over several decades on a scale that was hard to comprehend. Well, presumably it was hard to comprehend for The Guardian, but it certainly wouldn't be uh, for the uh, survivors themselves or indeed the UK column, uh, because we have warned and warned about the scale of the abuse of children uh, in UK. And it's clear that this is well known at government level, but either a blind eye is turned to the problem or else we can, I think, indicate with some confidence that the government itself is involved in helping to facilitate the abuse of the children. Uh, well, in the article, um, this lady is quoted, Councillor Claire Holland. And I'm just going to say this extraordinary graphic is not something created by the UK column. This has come off La Lambeth Council's own uh, web page. So here is Councillor Claire Holland, leader of the council. Uh, quite an extraordinary inset picture. I'm not sure the significance of the red, but let's bring her on screen. Uh, she said that Lambeth Council wishes to restate our sincere and heartfelt apology to all victims and survivors of abuse and neglect while in Lambeth's care. The council was responsible for their care and protection, but failed with profound consequences. The council is deeply sorry for their experiences. Now, of course, the key thing in this statement is that the council is nobody. Uh, to say that the council was at fault uh, doesn't take us anywhere. The truth of the matter is that individuals, people, human beings were at fault, but none of those are mentioned. And so they can all disappear into the long grass and life can continue as normal. So if we move across to uh, Professor uh, Alexis Jay, who was uh, leading the uh, ICSA inquiry, uh, she said the children in care were pawns in a toxic power game within the council in the 1980s and 90s. 
which was characterized over many years by bullying, racism, nepotism, and sexism against a backdrop of political chaos, corruption, and financial mismanagement. Was there anything that wasn't listed in there, Mike? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but she went on, this all contributed to allowing children in their care to suffer the most horrendous sexual abuse, with just one senior council employee disciplined for their part in it. We hope this report and our recommendations will ensure abuse on this scale never happens again. Well, of course, the beauty of Alexis Jay's inquiry is that it also very rarely, almost never, um, is pointing a finger at uh, at individuals and individual or individuals. It simply points the finger back at bodies like Lambeth Council who apologize as a body and life continues as normal. Yes, is there any sign of prosecutions? Uh, well, they've pointed the police at a case dating back to the 1970s. So presumably that will provide a little bit of distraction. Uh, but we'd just like to remind the public, um, I, I've put some words on the screen. Of course, Alexis J didn't say this, but I'll explain why I am saying it. Of course, we would not want the primary whistleblowers and survivors being given full access to this independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. It is a fact uh, that Alexis J's inquiry refused to give key whistleblowers um, and abuse survivors the opportunity to give their evidence in person at her inquiry. And key uh, witnesses within, from within the police, for example, were also denied the opportunity to put their full evidence on the table. So we will suggest that the Alexis J inquiry was, has been assembled in order to make sure that the system uh, around children goes undisturbed, but uh, maybe that's just an opinion. Okay, let's move on to some Green New Deal stuff now. Uh, over the last uh, couple of months, we have on a number of occasions highlighted the fact that, um, well, if the government is to pursue its policy of replacing uh, internal combustion engine vehicles with electric vehicles, that there is not sufficient cobalt and uh, lithium on the planet and other rare earths on the planet to uh, actually uh, produce the batteries required in order to do that if we stick with uh, lithium ion as the main technology involved. Uh, on top of that, uh, we've made the point that the electrical grid, the electrical infrastructure in the country isn't capable of charging the car fleet should we replace internal combustion engine vehicles with electric vehicles. Well, the Mail has a headline this morning, Britain faces blackouts due to electric car revolution. Fears national grid won't cope if drivers chain, uh, charge their vehicles at on peak times during the day. Uh, so um, they are saying uh, that uh, they quote Tory MP Hugh Merriman, who's chair of the Commons uh, Transport Select Committee, who's saying that owners should be incentivized to recharge batteries uh, little but often to avoid shortages. Uh, electric cars, they say, have been forecast to create an extra 18 gigawatts demand for power in the UK at peak times by 2050, uh, according to the National Grid. Uh, that is the equivalent of six Hinkley Point nuclear power stations. However, the, this was the bit that cr cracked me up. The actual increase in supply required is likely to be less due to improvements in charging technologies, and the eight, 18 gigawatt figure is cited as the most extreme scenario. Uh, the National Grid was, has insisted it will be able to cope with any increase 
without uh, blackouts? Well, the fact of the matter is that uh, the UK's uh, uh, electricity generating capacity has been falling for years, uh, and uh, there's no sign of that uh, process uh, being reversed. Um, so, but this is new news because uh, back uh, in December, I think this was uh, 2020, uh, this is uh, Energy Live News. National Grid boss warns Britain risks power blackouts because of network decay. Um, and uh, so they're saying that uh, this is mainly because reliable, what they describe as reliable coal and nuclear plants are being closed at a time when electricity use is expected to increase uh, with COVID-19 uh, rules relaxed. That was over the, the, the winter that's just gone by. Um, this was reported in what The Guardian writes uh, was a surprise report that warned that the margin of forecast electricity supplies might exceed demand by 5.3%, uh, uh, the tightest margin uh, recorded since the winter of 2015-2016. Uh, following tighter margins, uh, the report said, uh, in winter 2020-2021, compared to previous winters, we've decided to publish an early review of the margin for winter 2021-2022. We believe this will help inform the electricity industry and support preparations for the winter ahead. Um, so lots of people uh, talking about this um, for various reasons, not just the extra demand of electric cars. Of course, the more electric cars go on the roads, the more demand there is. Uh, and uh, but but also because uh, we are not replacing like for like the power stations that are being shut down and generating capacity is falling, and we're replacing you know uh, generating capacity that is capable of producing electricity twenty four hours a day, seven days a week with generating capacity, which is intermittent. So at certain times, whenever there's a reduction of wind or the sun isn't shining quite as much as it usually does, uh, <laughs> I say that with some irony in the UK, um, then uh, of course the, the, the generating capacity falls even further. So uh, it's just more indication that the policy that's being implemented, it doesn't gel with what the requirement is. And therefore you've got a question what the government foresees that the requirement will be in the next 40 or 50 years. Yeah, um, I'll just say, Mike, the policy does gel. If the policy is breakdown, is chaos and breakdown, it seems to work quite nicely. And it is strange we see breakdown in the NHS, the education system, the armed forces, and now we're on to uh, power, but it must be a coincidence. Just a coincidence. Um, and uh, well, speaking of economic issues, uh, then we've got this from Global Capital. Lagarde is right. It's too early to talk about ending PEP. So what is uh, PEP? This is the EU's uh, Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme. This is QE on steroids. steroids. It's, uh, I think, 1.85 trillion uh, euros of quantitative easing uh, under the term Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme. Uh, they describe it as a non-standard monetary policy measure initiated in March 2020 to counter the serious risk to monetary policy transmission mechanism and the outlook for the euro area posed by the coronavirus outbreak. Um, so that should be absolutely clear. Anyway, uh, the question is how long will this, uh, this quantitative easing programme, this additional quantitative easing programme, uh, continue, um, and the expectation is it will continue to well past March uh, next year. Um, but uh, Christine Lagarde, of course, who's the president of the European Central Bank, was attempting to sort of what is described as institutionalize the uh, the, the PEP uh, by turning it into a structured vehicle, a structured financial instrument. Um, but apparently, she has lost the vote on the board of the European Central Bank on that. 
Um, so, uh, well, it's still, she's still demanding that they need to progress with this and go ahead with it, but clearly there's beginning to be some pushback on it. And just another piece of uh, economic news that came out just before we came on air, um, and that is that uh, Sheffield Forge Masters is to be nationalised, Brian, in order to this, you should be very pleased with this, in order to guarantee supply of uh, steel for the Ministry of Defence and particularly the submarine. Uh, program. So, um, do you think that uh, nationalising this company is going to guarantee supply of steel? Well, I don't, because uh, in line with my previous comment, everywhere we watch is breakdown and destruction of Britain's steel industry, and allowing it to be sold off into foreign hands has been a key part of policy across Labour and and the Conservatives. So, this this has got to be deliberate breakdown of the country. But they've now got to the point that they know if they allow Sheffield Forge Masters to go, um, they're going to end up with major problems because the, this is specific quality steel that's needed for specific defence purposes. But the name Nick Clegg comes into my mind because, of course, when Sheffield Forge Masters started out problems uh, several years ago, uh, where was Mr Clegg? Well, of course, he was nowhere to be seen. I don't know whether Alex would like to uh, just give us a... Well, just before uh, I bring Alex on, I'll just say that the Ministry of Defence has paid £2.6 million for the entire share capital of uh, Sheffield Forge Masters. £2.6 million. They can manage £2.6 million to secure defence, but you can find £1.6 billion for propaganda about COVID. Yes, and £30 billion for a test and trace programme. Yeah. So anyway, yes, uh, but they're going to, don't worry, because they're going to, Alex, they're going to invest £400 million in the company. So that, that should see it all right. Well, this, this is state corporatism, isn't it, Mike? Except it's supranational level, even an intercontinental level with the amount of North American and European joint ventures in defence industries and the supply chain for defence industries now. Uh, for overseas viewers and those who've joined us more recently, uh, you might not be aware that the reason why Nick Clegg, Britain's former Deputy Prime Minister, when there was a Conservative Lib Dem coalition a decade ago, was just mentioned by Brian, is that Mr Clegg was uh, one of the members of Parliament Sheffield. He had one of the Shield constituencies. Sheffield, of course, is you'd be well world renowned as uh, Britain's uh, steel make the so that's that's why he was uh, apparently loath to commit uh, it's rather reminiscent as was your recent energy segment uh, 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 reminiscent of Nick Clegg's fellow uh, EU massive enthusiasm Davin Belgium as Belgium's European Union commissioner for quite a long time uh, he had the portfolio and at the time was quite explicit that uh, Britain and Belgium with Europe's two large industrial producers in many ways were going to be deindustrialized as part of his uh, Europe portfolio. Yes. Okay. Um, unfortunately, we, we had quite a bit of breakup in that, Alex, but I think we got uh, most of what you were saying. Now, let's move on to online harms. Uh, and uh, the online safety bill, of course, has been drafted. The draft has been published, uh, but there's a bit more work to be done before it gets laid before Parliament. And uh, the latest person to be uh, announced as getting involved in that work is uh, Tory party representative Suzanne Webb, who is honoured to be picked uh, to take a first look at this very important new piece of proposed legislation. That's her words, not mine. Uh, so Conservative MP uh, Suzanne Webb will work uh, cross-party on the, on the uh, uh, Digital Culture Media and Sport Committee looking at the draft online safety bill uh, ahead of it being presented to MPs in uh, the autumn, so after the summer holiday. 
Uh, and uh, well, I thought it would be worthwhile just reminding ourselves what the implications of this bill are. Now, she said, as, as you see on screen, that she's honored. Uh, she said it's a wide ranging piece of legislation and truly groundbreaking because some of its proposals around harmful com content and fines would be world firsts. Uh, there is no doubt the public supports greater protection for harmful online content, particularly for children. And uh, this, of course, once again, is the excuse that's being used for the most draconian censorship uh, legislation that we have seen. So let's just remind ourselves of what this is about. Uh, they say it applies to Category 1 platforms. Now, there are Category 1 platforms and Category 2 platforms, um, but uh, this isn't clear who's going to be categorized in which of those. So there are concerns uh, that uh, this is going to have a chilling effect on competition in markets. But aside from that, uh, it does, uh, although the bill does distinguish between the so-called Category 1, which are large, plat large platforms like Twitter and Facebook and so on, and Category 2, which are smaller platforms, uh, when they dole out the responsibilities that the bill claims to require, uh, it doesn't include any criteria for how a platform would be categorized. Um, so the bill provides that the Secretary of State will decide how the uh, categories are, are, are defined and who becomes who falls into the various categories. So uh, although we're saying Category 1 platforms applies to Facebook and Twitter and the likes, that's not necessarily going to be the case and it's not defined in the bill. Um, it applies to services used in the UK, so they're attempting to make this legislation apply to all kinds of companies that may not be even domiciled in the UK. Ofcom, as you know, is going to be the regulator, uh, but there's huge room for scope creep in this bill. Uh, just about every major clause has the opportunity for secondary legislation to be brought in after the fact. That's statutory instruments. These are laid before Parliament. They're often not debated. They're often not even looked at by MPs uh, and uh, often laid uh, at inappropriate times when, when to guarantee the, the fewest number of eyes on the, that legislation. It imposes this duty of care on various organizations, which is in line with the response to the online uh, harms white paper. So any company in scope of the legislation will have a duty of care towards their users so that what is unacceptable offline will also be unacceptable online. But the point that we've made in the past is that uh, uh, what's unacceptable on offline is already unacceptable online because there's already legislation in place to deal with uh, certain types of uh, uh, illegal uh, material. Um, the largest, most popular social media sites will need to act on content that is lawful but still harmful. And this is the other point here, because the term harmful is not defined. This is a concept. Well, what do they say? What does it say in the bill? Uh, it says that, uh, uh, well, it's, it's broad, it's vague. It says that it's content that could be reasonably, from the perspective of the provider, have a significant adverse physical or psychological impact on users. So it's totally subjective. There's no way of actually uh, knowing how, what this is going to mean, uh, and it remains undefined, as do many of the parts of the bill. Um, and uh, harmful also includes abuse that falls below the threshold of a criminal offence, uh, encouragement of self-harm, and the, here's the key, misinformation and disinformation. Again, these terms aren't defined, so that is basically whatever somebody decides it is. Um, the draft bill contains reserved powers for Ofcom to pursue criminal action against named senior managers whose companies do not comply with requests for information for Ofcom. So this is not uh, a corporate challenge by Ofcom. This would be against individuals. Um, 
The bill will ensure people in the UK can express themselves freely online and participate in pluralistic and robust debate. Well, actually, that's not entirely true, uh, because although uh, the bill claims to maintain freedom of speech, so you'll be able to publish a website and create a website, you won't have any restriction on what you can say on your website. Of course, because the bill targets social media companies and search engines, uh, actually, there's no opportunity to uh, participate in pluralistic and robust debate because you will be uh, deplatformed from the search engines and the social media platforms. We were already seeing that happen to a huge degree, including to the UK column. It's happening to many, many others. Um, and we're hearing that other uh, organizations are already beginning to be deplatformed from some of the payment pl uh, pr uh, platforms. So uh, my understanding is that uh, the, the last American Vagabond has already been removed from PayPal, for example. example. So this is going to be the next step. Um, now, freedom of expression, people using platform services will need to have access to effective routes of appeal for content removed without good reason. And removed without good reason is the key phrase here, um, because, uh, of course, uh, the platforms already claim to have good reason to remove uh, content, and they don't, uh, although they, they have what might be judged as not effective routes of appeal at this point, um, they still do have routes of appeal. And at no point that I'm aware of have they ever come back and said, oh yeah, we, we made a mistake. So uh, well, maybe on one or two very minor occasions, but in general, uh, it becomes a big black hole. You put in your appeal and that's it. Uh, and then users will also be able to appeal to Ofcom uh, and these complaints will form an essential part of Ofcom's horizon scanning research and enforcement activity. They will not actually do anything about it. It's just about intelligence gathering. Um, but here's the key point. Uh, ministers have added a new and specific duties to the bill for category one service to, services to protect content defined as democratically important. So any service which is considered to be category one uh, will be required to uh, protect content that's considered democratically important. Um, so that might be, for example, around elections uh, or anything really that the government... To do with government be, policy. Well, it could be government policy. It could be COVID-19 related. It could be any public health uh, related thing. Uh, if that's considered democratically important, it gets protection from any censorship. Um, content on news publishers' website is not in scope. This includes both their own articles and user comments on those articles. Uh, articles by recognized news publishers shared on in-scope services will be exempted and category one companies will now have a statutory duty to safeguard UK users' access to journalistic content shared on their platforms. So the BBC, the Guardian, the Telegraph, uh, the Daily Mail, the other purveyors, including those of what many view to be, to be the most uh, prolific purveyors of fake news uh, around, uh, their content is going to be protected while everybody else's continues to be censored. Well, let's use the word propaganda. The propaganda is going to be protected and anybody who dares challenge the propaganda is now going to come under the scope of this bill. Yes, and now we should say that the bill, the draft bill does make it clear that citizen journalist content will have the same protections as professionalist journalist content. But th then again, the definition of citizen journalist is not clear. Uh, we know that uh, if we look at uh, Bellingcat as an example, these people consider themselves as citizen journalists. Um, whereas, <laughs> in general, uh, the likes of uh, us or other people in alternative media uh, are very much not considered citizen journalists. So whose 
going to have the same protections, I suspect it is for the likes of uh, of uh, Bellingcat and not for anyone else. No, so, sorry. I just wanted to remind our audience that it was a UK column, of course, that exposed that if we dug into Ofcom, we found a lot of uh, uh, people from the BBC um, drawing BBC pensions, but claiming that they were independent as part of their duties within Ofcom. Some of them were even married to BBC partners. So our analysis of Ofcom was actually that it was uh, a minor offshoot of the BBC and that it was um, crass nonsense to suggest that it could claim to be independent in any, any form at all. Um, Ofcom declined to engage with us after we started to ask deeper questions about uh, uh, the pension packets that uh, some of their uh, board members were getting. Uh, but this presumably is something we need to uh, dig into once again. But I mean, I, I strongly uh, suggest that everybody gets involved in resisting this piece of legislation and also the police uh, crime and courts bill. These two bills have to be dealt with and uh, everybody should be getting involved with that, really. Yeah, because it's, it's, uh, it's another step in, in the path to removing free speech. Do we have time? For the video, of course. Oh, of course, right, okay. Well, you introduce it. Then. Okay, well, uh, a lot of people said to us, have you seen the video clip of Michael Gove talking? Uh, I hadn't, but I watched it pretty quickly after I was alerted to it, and we thought, yes, we must share this with our viewers for its rank arrogance. No, we're going to do what's right for public health, and I think that uh, uh, COVID certification in certain limited venues and for certain limited events is a way of making people safer and giving more of us more freedom. Well, for people who can't be vaccinated, I think that certainly mandatory testing is um, uh, uh, a useful tool in our armory. Um, but uh, uh, ultimately, if you can be vaccinated and you refuse to, that's a selfish act. You're uh, putting other people's lives and health at risk. You should get vaccinated. Well, uh, it depends, obviously, whether uh, which part of the United Kingdom you're in and or what the nature of the event is. But if you deliberately refuse to get vaccinated, and there are certain venues and certain events that require uh, a certain level of safety, then, you know, uh, it, the terms on which you will be able to get into those venues and those events, uh, they'll be barred to you. Uh, well, there, there we are. You're getting more freedom, but just, uh, well, just do it. Oh, beg your pardon. Just do as uh, Michael Gove says, because the one thing you're not going to get is any informed choice. Just do as Michael Gove says. Uh, luckily, we're not alone in uh, criticising this particular man, Mike. Uh, no, because Conservative Woman has published uh, a, an open letter uh, on this. And uh, who are you calling selfish, Mr. Gove? I do recommend everybody goes and reads it on full. Um, but I'll just read one paragraph from it. Yet, yet you claim to be able to divine the motives of others, and lo, you tell us that they are all the same. And the motive you have uh, detected is really quite a second-rate one, uh, as though it is held by so many immature children instead of by thoughtful adults every inch your equal. So um, I do recommend that uh, everybody goes and reads that uh, letter, and perhaps, uh, perhaps you might want to send it to him and ask him for comment. Well, this is exactly what people should do. Don't don't be annoyed at sitting and listening to what this man says. Challenge him in every way possible. And as the late school teacher demonstrated in dealing with the NHS, vax uh, 
booking centre there. The more polite you are, the more measured with your factual evidence, the better you're going to get the result. Uh, I think we need to end there. Yes. Now we're going to have a go at doing a short extra. Um, we'll see how Alex's uh, uh, feed holds up. Uh, Alex, of course, not in his usual place uh, at the moment. So uh, that's why the internet connection, the connection between us isn't so good as usual. So we'll I'll have a go at an extra and see how it goes. Uh, otherwise, well, remember, we won't be back at 1 p.m. on Friday because of the uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposium that's being hosted on the UK Column website. If you want to uh, watch it, ukcolumn.org forward slash live, 5 to 10 p.m. tomorrow night and on Friday night. Yeah, that's it from us. Thanks very much for joining us. We, we will be back shortly. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.